Hello and welcome to episode 279 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and I am joined by the host of last week's episode of Retro Encounter, Eva Padilla. Hey y'all, what up? Uh, I had a slightly difficult first half of March, listeners. I don't want to get too personal on the podcast, but I had some uh, life obstacles. And so we had to shuffle around the schedule a little bit, and Eva recorded an excellent Pokemon episode last week that I'm very grateful for, so thank you again. But we are back on track now and ready to talk about the next game on our on our schedule, Muramasa the Demon Blade, which is a game by Vanillaware Games, released on the Wii in the late 2000s, and then with a Vita remake in the early 2010s. Uh, so, Eva... Um, I think we're both pretty early on in this game. Uh, what are your early impressions of Muramasa so far? Gorgeous. I mean, it's that, that's the first thing that, that kind of stands out to you is the aesthetics. Um, I, I first played this game, like shortly after it came out, um, I strangely enough got this and Okami in the same GameStop visit. Um, and oh, on, on, on the on the Wii and not the Vita. Yeah, on the Wii. So I got cool. Okay. So I got both of those because I was just like, I want some uh, very, you know, artistically rich, aesthetically pleasing games. But I was also like a teenager, so I didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't understand them very well. Um, oh, also, two two very Japanese art style games. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was just getting into anime around that time too, so that kind of makes sense. Um, so I only played it for a little bit back then, um, both those games, um, but I was still struck by the arts. And now playing it on Vita, uh, especially with that uh, that OLED screen, it looks gorgeous. It's it's a very beautiful game. Um, it's very steeped in Japanese mythology, and uh, I'm pretty fascinated by it. It's my first Vanillaware, uh, really first Vanillaware experience, so. Uh, I am 100% with you on the art and aesthetics of this game. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. I think the backgrounds are beautiful. The animations are beautiful. A lot of the character work is, uh, it looks great and is at least interesting. But um, you mentioned this is your first Vanillaware game. This is not my first Vanillaware game, but I think we should talk about Vanillaware in general. And l- let's just kick it off right now. Uh, Vanillaware is the game studio of George Kamatami, who is a artist that has been around the games industry since the PS1 and Saturn era. Uh, he had a couple projects that sort of didn't pan out and uh, ended up making his own studio uh, that I believe began with Odin Sphere on the PS2 and has since uh, released several games in succession. Um, these are not all of them probably, but from memory, it's uh, we have Odin Sphere, Grim Grimoire, uh, Muramasa, Dragon's Crown... And most recently, Thirteen Sentinels: Aegis Rim. Um, did, I, did I miss any big hitters in there? Um, I don't think any big hitters. I think there are kind of there are a couple of smaller games, but those are like the those are like the big they're big projects, really. Right. Well, of those five, um, I, I've tried all of them. I uh, <laughs> like since Odin Sphere, I would uh, see. Vanillaware games on in magazines or in online games publications. Uh, b- me being, uh, you know, more than a little bit of a fan of Japanese games, uh, like really struck by their art style and intrigued by them. And I 
don't think I bought all of them, but I definitely tried all of them. I have Odin Sphere on PS2, uh, and I pl- one of my friends got into Dragon's Crown, and we played a lot of co-op Dragon's Crown for a, for several months in the early 2010s. Uh, and I, but I, I really couldn't get into any of them. Like I was always sold by the art style and then, and then let go by, let down by the gameplay sometimes, some, uh, sometimes like Odin Sphere has a sort of five chapters with a, a different playable character in each chapter. And I, and I, I petered out on that game in chapter two. And I, I don't think I even, um, the, the first time I tried Muramasa, which was on the Vita, I did, I, I didn't play it on the, on the Wii. Like I, I, I just sort of decided the action was subpar and I didn't need to continue. So I've I've owned this game for several years, but I'm finally committing to finish it uh, to now in 2021. But the the thing that really sold me on VanillaWare was playing 13 Sentinels last year. I played it uh, maybe a month or two after it came out and thought it was just excellent. And finally, there was a game with story and mostly gameplay that was at least acceptable enough for me to um, drink in all of that gorgeous vanillaware art for uh, a few dozen hours. Uh, um, and, and Eva, I'm not sure if you've tried it or not, but um, 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim comes highly recommended when you have the time and the inclination to do so. Yes, and I definitely do have the inclination, and I will find the time to do so. It, and that <laughs> And that's something that I've kind of heard from a lot of people as well. I really couldn't get that much into vanillaware. And then uh, with a, with Aegis Rim, a lot of people were like, yeah, actually the story um, holds up pretty well and it grabs me more um, in a narrative sense than any of their other previous games have. So it just kind of clicks a bit better and it's a better overall experience than the other ones. Yeah, and I think that um, – now I could be uh, – maybe underrating some of his uh some of their previous games but i i think that like part of vanillaware's story is that they haven't been that financially successful like you always hear about them selling below ex- uh, um expectations or sort of not uh, uh or, or or like game development being a struggle for them at times but um the success of 13 sentinels i i think has been Beyond their expectations, and that's that's good because maybe we'll get more games that are as interesting and beautiful as uh, Thirteen Sentinels, or, or at least as beautiful as um, Vanillaware games in general. And Princess Crown, that was the uh, th- that was the George Kamatami game for uh, for Saturn that mm-hmm. he that, that he made that was uh, that that sort of got him his big start. I, I was trying to remember it, but I uh, but. Uh, uh, was struggling five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, and I and I know that when he made that, he, um, you know, he kind of believed in the vision. If you look at Princess Crown, and then even you look at Thirteen Sentinels, um, you can and as you look at the games in their history, you can kind of see these linkages in that consistent art style that um, has persisted, and it's. And it seems like Kamatsani, Kamatsani was kind of um, upset with these bigger game development studios, or he just didn't work with them well, because I think he worked with Capcom and Atlas um, at some points before he worked on, um, before he started Vanillaware in the early 2000s. Um, and then Atlas became like a publishing partner with um, with Vanillaware later, but I think there were some tensions, there were some butting heads earlier on. Yeah, um, I I think that at, at least uh, without a lot of 
hard evidence, I think that Kamitami is a bit of a no-tour. Like, he really has an artistic vision for each of the games he makes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and but, but the struggles of, or, or I should say the realities of game development makes a lot of his projects struggles that have occasionally not panned out. But uh, 13 Sentinels is, I, I think, probably VanillaWare's uh, most successful game and and ma- gives the studio a brighter future than maybe they did for a while. Because, I mean, uh, 13 Sentinels was a little bit of an E3 joke at RPG Fan because... Uh, like it, um, the Atlas, the Atlas booth would always have like a poster for three Thirteen Sentinels, or like the same trailer from two years ago. Even though they had advertised Thirteen Sentinels on the on the lanyards handed out to media. <laughs> yeah, and that was and that was a number of years ago, right? When they did that. Yeah, I think that was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. <laughs> um. Uh, so like 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 uh, I remember. I remember in the moment and in following years, like, oh, 13 Sentinels, are we sure that game's ever going to come out? Uh, but when it finally did, it made a really big splash and ended up being one of my favorite games of 2020. And again, renewed my interest in VanillaWare and made me more interested than ever to uh, try another one of their games in 2021. So let's actually talk about the game we're supposed to be discussing, <laughs> Muramasa the Demon Blade, uh, whose Vita version is called Muramasa Rebirth. Now... um it's a uh, it's a it's a solo action game with a lot of RPG elements. Uh, there's a it's a it's 2D action with really beautiful backgrounds and nice animations and a, a number of ways to start combos. You you, you have your basic uh, jump and your basic slash and combo, but there's ways to do air dashes and overheads and slide moves that that gives you a, a pretty robust suite of moves. And then the circle button on the Vita uh, allows you to use your blade's special attack, which is, uh, you know, governed by a meter that can fill up. And if you uh, if you have too many unsuccessful um, guards at once or use the special attack too much, your sword can break, which means you have to switch swords while your broken sword recovers. Uh, and your sword is recovering from being broken because all of your swords are these living demon swords that thirst for blood and are some semi sentient but also can do things like naturally heal themselves and use and use uh use demon powers so and and, and also uh, in addition to some basic rpg elements like gaining levels and using and and cooking food to heal yourself uh you can forge new swords and keep a loadout of three swords at once that you switch between in battle so collecting swords finding new swords fighting enemies gaining resources um using sword special moves that's kind of the that's kind of the vibe of how you progress in this game yeah it's quite it's quite linear at least early on and i don't suspect it will um break from that linearity too much not necessarily a dig at the game just a state of affairs but it's uh it definitely it has a mini map in it even that just kind of points you left or right to where to go so yeah it's rarely more complicated than uh this zone has two exits in the upper left and lower left and uh and there's some metrovania elements where uh you know there's maybe hidden areas or special trial caves that i think reward you with a rare blade if you finish them mm-hmm um, there's something like a hundred blades total, and uh, uh, that you that you can collect. So the, um, completionists will have at least some activities to do to do in this game, and uh, you, the story is linear and the events are linear. But we should mention there is a lot of uh, 
backtracking through the same areas to get to new story points. And there are two playable characters. Uh, There's two parallel storylines, one with the main character Momohime and one with the main character Kisuke. Uh, that they be- begin on, I think, opposite sides of the map. Momohime sort of starts on the uh, uh, in the east, and Kisuke starts in the west. And th- I think they'll eventually probably visit some of the same areas. But at least in the early chat, I'm in the early chapters for both pl- uh, characters. They're basically still sticking to their halves of the map for now. Yeah. So interestingly enough, have um, have Kisuke and Momohime briefly met in your game yet? No, I don't think so. So. If you go to the hot springs, it was like the third time I went to the hot springs, because um, I'm just playing the Kisuke route right now. You go there, um, and usually it's just um, some macaques or something that are there. Mm-hmm. But the third time I went to a hot spring, Momohima was actually there. Um, oh, I, I think I've only been to hot springs twice, so maybe I just need to wait for that third meeting. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's specifically for the third meeting, or if it's just that... Um, that she might randomly, you know, it might randomly proc or something like that, where it's like, oh, I guess Mo- Momohime shows up here. But uh, Kisuke sees her and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, I just didn't want to waste this bath. Uh, I, I hope I'm not making you uncomfortable. And then he skedaddles. But are you sure it's really Momohime? I don't know. I mean, well, yeah. okay, uh, let's go into the, the, the basics of each of their stories. Um, uh, Momohime is possessed by a demon sword, and, and this is not a, a big spoiler. This is at the very beginning of the game. Um, there, a uh, a warrior, a, a sort of some kind of demon warrior named Jinkuro, was trying to kill uh, a samurai lord named Yukinojo, and Momohime, who I I don't think she's uh, wait no, no yeah yeah I think um, Momohime is Yukinojo's fiance, and she tries to step in between the blow, but uh, the technique Jinkuro was using was a soul-stealing technique. Um, so Jinkuro's goal was to have his soul replace Yukinojo's soul and then, and then uh, you know, do some kind of dark deed in Yukinojo's body. But instead, he accidentally possesses Momohime. And um, so at, at the beginning of their story, you're, uh, you're not really Momohime. You are Jinkuro Momohime. <laughs> and uh, at first you have to find Momohime's missing soul because if her soul gets destroyed, then her body will be destroyed as well. So Jinkuro's, Jinkuro's uh, goal is, all right, first got to find Momohime's soul and secure it. So we'll be two souls in the same body or maybe her soul sealed away uh, just so her body won't be destroyed. But then I got to find Yukinojo and properly possess him and give Momohime her body back. That, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the gist of, her, of uh, Momohime's story. And at, at first, a very confused Jinkuro is trying to track down Momohime's missing soul, then he finds her, then he's trying to track down Yukinojo in Chapter 3, where I stopped playing. And uh, Kisuke's story is a little different. He's a ninja that I think is part of the clan that Yukinojo, the, the samurai lord that uh, Jinkuro is trying to track down, is part of. And he wakes up uh, Amnesiac with a demon sword uh, at his side, uh, fights off a bunch of ninjas that are part of his clan, and he's just trying to figure out what happened to him. And when he finally reconnects with some of his ninja buddies and uh, and, and, and even meets Yukinojo, um, 
they inform him that uh, that he betrayed his ninja brethren, killed a bunch of them. The the skulls at his waist are maybe souvenirs of the people he's killed, which is a little creepy. I didn't even I didn't even notice he had a bunch of skulls on his belt until that conversation. Right? Yeah. Same here. I was like, he has. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> oh, those are skulls. Oh, those are the maybe the skulls of his friends. Yikes. <laughs> Uh, and then Yukinojo sends him on a mission to track down a woman named Tori, uh, Torahime. And, uh, I know that Torahime and Momohime are sisters, but I don't, but I haven't met Torahime yet because when I stopped in Kisuke's storyline was traveling to find Torahime. And because she's like three provinces away, uh, which is probably a, a, a dozen or more, uh, screens away, I decided, yeah, I'm going to save and, and, and pick this up later. But but you're a little bit – but uh, you told, said you're only in Kisuke's story. You haven't started Momohime's yet. But uh, but you're a bit farther than I am. Like how does it progress from there? Well, so um, he ends up finding Torahime and uh, Torahime also is uh, uh, riding a, a giant flaming dead horse, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool that, stuff. That sounds pretty dope. Yeah. yeah. Um and she is going to um, a castle to track down someone. Um, and basically, uh, Kisuke is going to be following her to that. Um, he had fought her in battle, and now she's... He didn't harm her either. Um, he he killed the, the, the demon horse that she was riding, um, but he left her completely unscathed. And she is off to um, she's off to this warlord. So we're still kind of we still don't really have a whole lot of clarity as to why Kisuke doesn't remember things and what exactly he's tracking down. Um, but we do have um, you know, Muramasa that is forging blades for him and is kind of keeping him on his path in some way. And this is based on the 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 famous. Uh, this famous smith, Sengo Moramasa. Um, so he's building all these blades for you. And there are 108 for the 108 uh, sins in Buddhism, I believe. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's uh, the 108 earthly ple- uh, earthly desires earthly in Buddhism. Desires. Which and and you know in you know, Buddhism, you, you strive to um to like remove yourself of, of earthly desires to achieve nirvana. So there's um 108 is an important number in, in a lot of way in in a lot of sort of Japanese cultural things. Uh, that that's why. Uh, in in one piece zoro's one of zoro's special moves is 108 pound cannon oh that's right yeah. uh <laughs> yeah and and, and I, I think also why it's uh 108 stars of destiny in um in in suikoden um yeah. but the but i i have i haven't seen the paths intertwine yet but i believe they will do so in a more meaningful way in the second half of the story because uh, I, I, Muramasa is also in Momohime's story, but basically the uh, I think in both paths, um, each of them has a Kitsune sidekick. It's a uh, a tall one named Yuzaruha in uh, for Kisuke, and a more um, a a more flirty one in, named uh, Ran, named Kongiku for uh, Momohime. And and, and Kongiku the uh, I, I hope I'm not. Mis- mispronouncing her name, uh, Gongiku is in love with Jinkuro, the demon that's possessing Momohime. So they, so she's a uh, she, she's you know always professing her love to him while he's being a little bit rude to her, to be honest. Um, 
and and I think in at the end of chapter one in both stories, the, your Kitsune ally gives you a mask or an item that allows you to 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 connect with the spirit of Muramasa and and forge uh, swords together. And even you, your sword forging system is basically kind of a skill tree that lets you make new weapons. And uh, they even uh, share the same skill tree. There's at least one sword I've found already that need that has a prerequisite sword, uh, one from um, one for Kisuke and one for Momohime. So it's it's the, these storylines and skills will inter- intersect eventually. But other than the swords they start, what swords they can use, I think the gameplay is identical for both characters. And uh, and using different swords only um, again because the moves are basically the same. Other than uh, they'll play identically except for. Um, the, whatever special sword powers are attached to the circle button. Yeah, they basically have different run animations, and that's kind of it. <laughs> oh no! More important, they have they have different sheathing animations because the Kisuke yeah, throw your right. um, throw your sheath up and have it land on the sword perfectly is really really stylish. I like that a lot. It is. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. I am. Yeah, I am reducing it. Those animations for the sheathings are pretty rad. Um, it, Momohime's is a little bit tamer. Uh, she spins around in one hand and then sh- and then casually sheathes it. But uh, the stylish toss and and catch that uh, um, that Kisuke does kind of reminds me of a classic Haomaru animation in a uh, in oh, yeah. Samurai Showdown. Uh, oh, and, and Capcom vs and K two Mark of the Mark of the Millennium. Very importantly, <laughs> um, I don't know why they let a samurai fight in a Street Fighter game, but there we but there you go. Uh, it, it th- these animations are so good. Uh, uh, even the regular um, mook ninjas that you deal with are like like they at least move and jump in interesting ways. Uh, they, even though they're almost laughably easy to kill at one point because you can deflect any attack by striking or blocking. Um, you uh, you can dash around. I mean, if you pl- there's two difficulty modes. Uh, and on legend difficulty, their enemies are almost more targets than proper enemies. But on the other one. Um, uh, the one time I tried it, I was losing a little bit too much health and was concerned about my ability to beat this game in a prompt manner. So I, I just, I, I'm thinking I'm going to stick with Legend for the rest of the way. Yeah, it's kind of weird that the, the difficulty options aren't as simple, like easy or hard. It's Legend and Chaos, which are not like a, which that's not a steady ramp up. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my brain, but. I'm, I mean, because there's only two, it's easy to um, make heads and tails about it. But if they were to make more uh, intermediate difficulty options, that system would have just been like the Xbox, the Xbox going forward, where it's just like, which one, which one is the one that, that came before? Was it the 360, the one, the X? I can't tell. <laughs> Yeah, it, it may be not quite as linear as the PlayStation's progress of consoles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if the next one after the PS5 is something other than the PS6, I mean, the, the internet will have a lot of jokes ready from, year, from years of interpreting the Xbox order of things. Sure. And, uh, you know, speaking of the difficulty, every time you play the game, you choose the difficulty that you, that you go on. And so I think the second time I fired up my Vita to play this, which was, you know, several days ago by now, uh, I was worried that I had accidentally deleted my save file or something. It's like, wait, wait a second. What do you mean I have to click begin and then choose a difficulty setting? Did did it not? Did I not save last time? Mm-hmm. Like I was I was briefly confused, but no, it's just they make you pick the difficulty every time you load, mm-hmm. which isn't too which isn't too bad because you know 
Maybe there's yeah, a day it, where you're feeling you're feeling a bit more uh, ready for that challenge of the chaos. So. Oh yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with it. I was just a little bit alarmed. Yeah. Unnecessarily. Oh, sure. <laughs> the, the, again, the, the second time I figured I fired up the game. Um, there, there's not. I haven't had any real technical difficulties with the Vita version. Now, there's not even significant loading times. It runs pretty smooth. Yeah. But it, 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 I think it did come out something like three or four years after the Wii version, which is you know a, a whole new development cycle. It's sort of remarkable that they had a slightly late port that runs this well, even. Yeah, I think it. I think it's pretty. It's a pretty good um, showcase for what exactly the Vita could do and what a game on Vita could look like because frankly for me a lot of time the Vita has been a a retro machine for me that's been my go-to portable PS1 it's been my you know it's been my upgraded PSP um so the only Vita game I had really played on there was Persona 4 Golden which you know was also a PS2 title originally and this is a game that actually shows off um, how gorgeous the Vita could be. Um, just with that beautiful OLED, it's not as high of a resolution as a Switch screen, but it still looks just gorgeous. I'm trying to think of the games I've enjoyed on my Vita the most, and they're overwhelmingly ports. Right. Um, uh, even ones that had ports later like i i played uh i played a ton of podcast games on the vita from oh shoot from breath of fire 4 to uh to let to legend of heroes heroes trails of cold steel to this i i also enjoyed persona 4 golden very much on the vita uh it, it's the vita had a little bit of an unfortunate um reputation like sony sort of stopped putting a lot of money into it only a few years in its lifetime uh, global sales are around the 16 17 million range which is around the same as uh, about as much as a Wii U so uh and both of those consoles are considered unsuccessful for their publishers but it, it's such a nice machine like playing things on the Vita feels good and uh, again I've played many a PS1 PSP port uh, um on it including oh shoot I, one of the ones i didn't mention was uh tactics ogre let, let us clean together last year for the yeah, podcast me too and um and when we podcasted together on uh vagrant story i play i was playing it on the vita same here um the, the one one tricky thing though is if you're playing a ps1 game on the vita and it uses the dualshock one so so uh so a, a later ps1 game that maybe uh that that doesn't use the ancient PS1 controller, but uh, the, but adds one with the uh, with uh, L2, R2, and um, and and dual joysticks. Um, sometimes tapping the back of your Vita <laughs> can make it um, press L L2 or R2. So I would get really really weird errors at times playing um, maybe more than one game, but I specifically remember it happening during Breath of Fire Four. Uh, like I think I think. Uh, I, I I think it it, it like it uh, changed it to fast forward or paused the game or something oh, or gosh. changed the menu when you when you were when you hit L two or R two so sometimes if I were if I just was touching the back of the Vita with my hands at in a resting position the game thought I was holding down R two and got real weird yeah um, so <laughs> so I don't know what your experience is like that but PS one games in the Vita were great ninety percent of the time but sometimes you got to be a little bit careful yeah like anytime I'm going into um a port of a game on Vita or um, 
in the like PS1 classics or something, first thing I do is check those controller settings. I'm like, okay, if I touch the back of this, is something going to happen? Because I'm going to brush against the back <laughs> of it, and I do not want anything to just absolutely fall to heck. So, Yeah, for, I don't know, for maybe over an hour when I was trying to play Breath of Fire 4, and this would have been... Oh geez, I don't. I, I'd have to check the dates, but like it was either January 2016 or January 2017. I was just so alarmed that my v, my beloved Vita was broken, that uh, it, that there was you know a, a real struggle. But then, but then I figured out. Oh, it's when I'm resting my hands on the back. Oh, it thinks I'm pressing L2 or R2. Mm-hmm. Now I get it. It was a. I was I was concerned for a second, but then eventually figured out figured it out. But uh, but regardless, the Vita is a very nice machine to play games on. The control I think the controller and button placement um, feels good and makes sense, and uh, games look great on it because of that nice screen. And uh, but it did become a bit of an indie an indie port machine and like an upgraded port machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's a little reductive to call it a port machine, but if there's ever a system that it was appropriate for, it's this one. So uh, we're playing an upgraded port of a Wii game that had a an extra few years of development on it, and the result is is pretty gorgeous. This game looks beautiful and plays at least adequately because I, I don't think it's a great action game moment to moment, but it's it's at least good enough. Yeah, definitely. I heard, um, I was watching a video earlier today by YouTube user named Narrell, who had basically compared it to a very, very relaxed Bayonetta in just like the moment to moment gameplay, um, with it being just kind of simplified and such, but having sim- a similar rhythm in some way. Um, and I think that's, I think that's decently accurate. Of course, it's not, it's not anywhere near the complexity. Um, or the combo machine that you can do with Bayonetta. But it is, it's simple and it, and it can feel pretty good if you are getting your, your air dashes right and you're getting your down strikes and such. It, it, it works. It is competent enough for what's, um, presented because the presentation is really the key driver of the game. I, I think that you can compare this to uh, somewhat of a long tradition of ninja action games in Japan. Um, like even uh, going back into the '80s arcade ga- days, games like Ninja Gaiden and um, the the Goemon games made by Konami are all, sort of all share a bit of a lineage with this. And uh, and even in going um, the Goemon games, at least I, I know there was a. Oh, there was a popular Super Nintendo one that never that uh, that had a translation project in the early 2000s. That one has a lot of RPG elements in it, and there's a uh, N64 one. I think it's, I think it's just called Mystical Ninja Goemon in uh, in North America. That was that was fairly popular, but uh, games like and, and of course there's Ninja Gaiden, which was 2D for several years, and then had a uh, a bit of a 3D renaissance with the Koei t- with the Tecmo ones on Xbox and and 360. Yeah, but. The game that this reminds me of is an older one of those, and talking about strange development stories, uh, Eva, stop me if I've told you this before. Uh, There is a 1984 or 85 arcade game called Legend of Kage. No. And, continue. Okay. (laughs) 
I don't think it's a great arcade game. It's, 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 you know, it's semi-popular. It was made by Taito, uh, which Square Enix bought several years ago. So I think Square, uh, Square Enix owns the license now. But it was a pretty good, or at least passable, ninja action arcade game from the 80s that had an NES port. But it reminds me of Muramasa because the stages are very vertical. The jumps are very floaty. There's a lot of jumping between branches and forest stages and then all along rooftops and ninja bases in, in, uh, in that game. So this game almost feels like a much, much prettier version of Legend of Kage when you're uh, when you're playing it um, when you're in most of the action uh, action sequences in the game but Legend of Kage did have a sequel Legend of Kage 2 which I have played uh, I've played it more than original Legend of, Legend of Kage um, even but uh, Eva if you don't already know can you guess what year and what system Legend of Kage 2 came on uh, or, 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 original was arcade and NES in 1984. I, I think 85. So hazard a guess for Legend of Kage 2. Uh, 1992 Sega Genesis. Try 2008 Nintendo DS. What? <laughs> it had a DS sequel 23 or 24 years later. What? Oh <laughs> and, my God. and Legend of Kage is, I, I, again, I think it was, popular enough like it was a it was a a good arc or an, at least an all right arcade game of that era but who was demanding a legend of kage sequel <laughs> 23 years later they clamored for it the fans <laughs> the fans were just ravenous and they knew what they had to do they knew they needed kage back i i was um when i was being a bad boy and uh and pirating a bunch of ds games in the late 2000s i stumbled across legend of kage 2 and so I downloaded it and uh, and got pretty far. The the final boss, or maybe or maybe second to last boss, was really really hard, and I and I did not beat him. But uh, it, but just like finding that game on a sketchy emulation website, and then doing a little bit of research, like, huh, I wonder where Legend of Kage One comes from, uh, was a was a bit of a <laughs> of a fun surprise. And again, this is over a decade ago for me. Um, but like, but playing this, I'm like, oh, the jump is kind of floaty. You're going from tree branch to tree branch, fighting a bunch of ninjas. And oh, this stage is I'm running along the rooftops of some kind of castle town. This is totally Legend of Kage. Uh, so that that's what this reminded me of. And Legend of Kage too. I did end up buying a uh, physical copy of it later, uh, years and years later, because Square Enix was selling a, had a big sale on this on their store. In something like 2019, and I'm like, what the hell? I can get this weird DS game that I tried 10 years ago for 10 bucks? All right, mail it to me, Square Enix. Um, so I, I, yeah, I own a copy of Legend of Kage 2 for the DS, and th- that is what this game reminded me the most of. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I had no, I had never even heard of Legend of Kage, but that is hilarious that they'd even, that this way, to, that they would think, you know, that warrants a sequel. Um, but I mean, if you enjoyed it, I'm glad they did. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, um, Legend of Kage 2 is not brilliant, but it's pretty good. And, uh, but it, it, Muramasa definitely reminds me of it. But Muramasa has way more RPG elements, way more consistent art style. But just like the, the way some stages are weirdly vertical and the way your jumps are floaty, uh, and, and just sort of the nature of the setting with a, you know, a uh, Japanese folklore tinted version of, um, post-classical Japan from hundreds of years ago, uh, it, like that—that that all sort of aligns. And I think because Japan has 
probably dozens, maybe hundreds of ninja action games over the decades. <laughs> like, like, I mean, we, we mentioned a couple of them, but there's also Shinobi and, uh, uh, and, and probably dozens that just never left Japanese shores. Cause, uh, again, like you and I are from North America. We, our exposure to Japanese games were mostly the ones that got localized. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I am certain that there are, a hundred Japanese ninja action games that I have never played or heard of that, that perform this sort of larger lineage of games that Muramasa does. I, I am, I am pretty sure that Kamitami and his VanillaWare buddies, um, wanted to do a ninja action game with their art style and, and, and their sensibilities. And that's what we're playing. Yeah. And honestly, it's a little bit surprising that this game was, um, localized, I'm kind of surprised this game was localized at all. Um, just because of how small, um, VanillaWare was at the time. Like I looked up that, um, only 16 people worked on this game when it originally came out for Wii. Um, and, you know, this was, this was kind of a time of a lull for a lot of, uh, Japanese game development on consoles. I mean, it wasn't HD, but it was, um, a a very a, a game that was really wrapped up in Japanese mythology and Japanese artistic sensibilities and Japanese music um that was coming out on the Wii which at that time had become a very uh global console and was selling um extremely well in the United States and Europe and etc um so it's kind of strange to me that it was even localized at first but I'm glad it was yeah, that era of Nintendo was maybe their most successful ever because I think the Wii and the DS are their two most successful consoles ever. I'd have to I'd have to look at numbers to double check that, but I, I think that there was maybe a spike in Japanese games coming over on the on the Wii, or, or, or a spike of more Japanese games getting localized because of the success of the the global success of the Wii and DS. Um, and it is a little bit surprising that this game would come out. I mean, VanillaWare was releasing games globally at the time, but I don't think all of their games have come out in all regions. So um, I'm, I'm sort of glad this one did. And what a coincidence that you were to pick up uh, Okami and Muramasa at the same time, because those games do fit a sort of aesthetic and even a an era and, and, and setting. Because, it, I mean, steeped in Japanese folklore... Uh, set in in you know the, the, a samurai era or some kind of folkloric era of Japan, they, 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 I think those two games fit reasonably next to each other. With one of them being a like a beautiful Zelda like, and the other being a beautiful uh, Legend of Kage like that popular <laughs> genre of Legend of Kage like the, the best genre. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and funny enough, I actually just finished um, playing Okami HD a couple of days ago. So oh. this, so this is kind of like a. Uh, this is kind of like a a decade on. I'm completing work that I that I did not do <laughs> ten it, years ago. It took it, it took me a while to get to Okami as well. Um, I bought that game on PS2, but then never got very far in it, which is you know uh, story of my life. But it, 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 it's totally because like it came out while I was attending university, and um, that that was where where there's a lot of abandoned video game projects in the mid 2000s for me. Uh, for that reason, I ended up playing Okami. On the, uh, the HD PS3 version in the early 2010s, uh, I, I could find a I could find a list somewhere. But it, my guess would be around 2012, 2013 range. But um, th- that game is beautiful too. There isn't there is a retro encounter episode about Okami, but we are talking about um, 
Uh, Muramasa the Demon Blade. Oh, w- one weird, also unrelated video game development story I uh, that uh, is one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know the famously bad game Daikatana, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, from around uh, around 99 or 2000. Uh, made by uh, um, one of the creators of Doom. Uh, what's his name? John Romero. That's him. Yeah, John Romero. And uh, he had a studio in Austin, uh, w- like had the – uh, the ridiculous tagline John Romero is going to kick your ass or, 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 or John Romero is going to make you his bitch there I think you might go. have been it <laughs> yeah, uh, and, but, uh, and Daikatana had a really overblown bad development history and ended up being a pretty unsuccessful game it was advertised in my PC copy of Final Fantasy 7 from around 99 to give you uh, <laughs> and, and, and around when a lot of PC games came in those weird trapezoidal boxes mm-hmm. uh, but my favorite ridiculous Daikatana story relates to the word kage which is you know the japanese word for shadow for shadow mm-hmm. and um they had sent over scripts for voiceover for when they were making daikatana and um the the the, the studio that was recording all the voice or all the voiceover pronounced kage cage for oh every God. line of dialogue no <laughs> <laughs> And when John Romero like heard it for the first time or saw it, it was like, oh no, how did this happen? And they had to re-record everything, which is just one bullet point on the silly, overblown development history of Daikatana. What? Um, yeah, there's there's an entire there's an entire treasure trove of blunders and everything to talk about with oh, yeah. Ion Storm and Daikatana. Um. I, I think there is a uh, there is. Either a long form piece or a uh, short documentary or both about Daikatana because it, it's exactly the kind of story that would that would merit that kind of project. And, and I think I think that's where I heard that um that that Kage Cage story before. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Daikatana maybe also in the tradition of ninja action games, maybe not as good as Muramasa the Demon. Boy. It tr- it tried to be in the tradition, and uh, well. The Game Boy Color version is the best one, and we'll say that. <laughs> um, oh, but- Game Boy Color. Game Boy Color, some of the best Zelda games. Also my favorite Metal Gear Solid game. For, this is so off topic, but really? Like the, the Metal <laughs> Gear, uh, what is that, Metal Gear Ghost Babel? No, no, no. It, it, I think it's just called Metal Gear Solid, but it's um, uh, it, it is... Uh, it's for the Game Boy Color, and it's sort of a, a it's sort of a I think it's called Metal Gear Gaiden in Japan, maybe. Oh, okay. Um, but it's uh, a, a pretty competent Game Boy uh, top-down action game um, in the Metal Gear Solid universe. It's it's uh, I was kind of joking about about that, but also not because I'm not the biggest Metal Gear Solid guy in general. I've only I've only finished one other uh, game in the series, but um, yeah, uh, Game Boy, uh, excuse me, Game Boy Color Metal Gear game. Actually, pretty good. Let, let yeah. me Google that was, to make sure I'm not making this up. And oh, no. It was, it was in a fe- so, fever dream. So it was just called Metal Gear Solid in the U.S., but okay. it was Metal Gear Ghost Babel in Japan. That's, okay. That's See, all right. So, so we were we were both right. Um, Isn't I, uh, but I, yeah, I, I do I do not know enough about Metal Gear to know that it was called Ghost Babel in Japan. Oh, uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I did not think that would come on this podcast and talk about Metal Gear, and I'm just not going to. Anyway. So, with well, okay. Let's see. Metal Gear is pretty stealthy. So, is Solid Snake a ninja? Is Metal Gear also in the grand tradition of Japanese ninja action games? I mean, you, <laughs> there can be a case made for Raiden. 
I will not be the one making that case today. <laughs> I, I, I can tell my Metal Gear ignorance is frustrating you a little bit, Eva. But, okay, if we're talking about, um, uh, like, the development history of Daikatana and the Game Boy Color Metal Gear Solid game, we might be near the end of the episode. But, uh, but, but before we go in, into it, um, before we get into housekeeping, uh, I, I mean, I, uh, two questions for you. How excited are you to play more Muramasa? And also, do you think you're going to get into the DLC a little bit? Because we we haven't mentioned this yet, but for, uh, in the Vita version, there are four uh, special DLC chapters. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to play more. I was I'm kind of progressively warming up to it, um, and uh, we're I'm going to see how it goes with my playthrough of Kisuke and Momohime's story. Um, but I think I'm going to play the DLC because um, the DLC is called Genroku Legends and it was uh, it's exclusive to the Vita version. And there are four like little short stories that are like one to two hours long. They all have uh, a different uh, playable character. And it's one of the strangest like DLC releases that I've had that I've ever seen because it's like, okay, we're doing a remaster of this game. And instead of the DLC being some sort of costumes or like, you know, combat missions or something, this or, or, is, or even yet. Yeah, yeah. Even more Kisuke or more Momohime. Right. This, these are, these are entirely different characters um, put into these environments um, four years later on a different console. So I think just on that basis, I'm interested in it. So I'm probably going to give them a shot. Um, and if it's something that I can stick more in this world's gorgeous art, which, you know, as opposed to um, Okami, which has a very, um, you know, a singular kind of artistic period of uh, Japanese culture, this is kind of drawing from a lot of things, but specifically centered around Kabuki theater. Um, it's, it's something that I just want to see more and more of because every succeeding hour just brings new kind of aesthetic flourishes and things I'm hugely impressed by. Yes, I, I am entirely in agreement with you. Uh, I think that Muramasa is so successful aesthetically and at least adequate in gameplay. And so my motivation to play more is to see more beautiful settings and, 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 uh, and elaborate boss designs. Uh, more so than seeing how the story is. The, the story is fine. The gameplay is fine. The art is amazing. And um, me wanting to play more Maramasa is very visually motivated. And those uh, those four small DLC chapters, uh, the the price isn't bad. They're five dollars each or fifteen dollars for the four pack, uh, which which is, I, I think is you know reasonable enough for what it is. And like one of them is a uh, is a cat trying to avenge the murder of its owner, yes. which is which sounds great. Another one is a demon princess trying to do some kind of hell business. That sounds great. Uh, I'll uh, I I'm at least intrigued by it. I'm not sure if I'm gonna um if I'm gonna pull the trigger on them yet, but I. Uh, I am interested in playing more Muramasa and might be interested in playing uh, some uh, Muramasa, Muramasa. You said uh, uh, Ganroku chapters? Genroku. Genroku Legends. Genroku. Yeah. Genroku Legends. That's what it was. I did not do enough research to remember either of those words, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, I am interested enough to remember what we're doing next on Retro Encounter. Uh, next week, we're going to have our second episode on Muramasa the Demon Blade. By then, Eva and I will hopefully have finished both Kisuke and Momohime's stories, and we'll be able to talk about the, the story in a more complete manner. 
Um, cause again, I think we're maybe halfway or just short of halfway on the, on these two stories. I, I think there's seven or eight chapters for each and I'm, I'm midway through chapter three for both players or both protagonists. Uh, so that's what's coming next week. And following that, we're doing, we're finally going to do that episode on Crimson Shroud that I've been telling people we were going to do in March. Whoops. Um, <laughs> That is another weird, cool game that is uh, definitely worth discussing. And uh, also an episode, another Final Fantasy XIV episode. I know, listeners, you're tired of RPG fans' FF14 content, but we're not slowing down yet. We're doing part three of our four-part FF14 miniseries in April, uh, as well as a game, uh, I, th- I think, yeah, we've mentioned this in previous episodes. We're doing two episodes on Suikoden 3 in April, a game I have not started yet because I've been too busy with Bravely Default 2 and Muramasa the Demon Blade. So... Uh, hope, hopefully, I can finish that game about 108 different things that aren't swords uh, <laughs> by the time we record those episodes in April. Um, and let's see, May. I won't say what game we're playing yet. We have we have figured out what we're doing in May, but it is to celebrate a very special video game anniversary. Please look forward to it. Uh, and in addition to. Retro Encounter RPG Fan has three other fine podcasts, Random Encounter about randomness, Rhythm Encounter about rhythmness, and Phoenix Edge about Phoenixness. Uh, please uh, please subscribe and try out or listen to all three of those plus ran- uh, Retro Encounter and review those on iTunes or Google Play or whatever podcast listening venue you are using. Give us all the feedback you can. And, and RPG Fan is not all about podcasts. You can also visit RPG Fan's main website with message boards or our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter page, our discord server our youtube channel our twitch uh channel something streaming every day on twitch and uh if you want to reach out to us directly the best way to do so is to email retro at rpgfan.com or um on our individual social media pages so eva what's yours so you can find me on rpg fans general social media accounts but you can also find me on my personals as at eva lease on twitter and instagram and listeners, if you want to reach out to me directly, my, uh, the best way to do so is usually Twitter. I am at the real monsoon on Twitter most of the time, at evoker for dogs other times. If you want to hear my thoughts on the brand new Super Sentai series, uh, uh, Kikai Sentai Zen Kaiger, which is super good three episodes in. Um, but, uh, you also can find me on RPG fans Discord as Monsoon Mike. Uh, so, uh, Eva, I think both you and I have some more stylish ninja action to play, so let's uh, hop off the podcast and get back to that. Let's get some Listeners, more swords. Yeah, more swords. Oh man, Co- like I think the the real end game of this is is collecting all those swords because there's <laughs> I'm definitely missing some. <laughs> Listeners, thank you. Good night and good luck.